Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, Sam Marula is facing some blowback from CHCH and possibly the Integrity Commissioner. Is Trump turning the 4th of July celebrations into a military showboat? And with the federal election on the horizon, is there a risk of cyber interference this time around? The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The latest wrinkle that you heard about on CHML News yesterday, uh, CHCH News has now filed uh, an integrity commissioner complaint against Councillor Sam Marula over his comments uh, to a reporter and about a reporter. Uh, This is through Twitter, of course, uh, and uh, they were quite upset about that. Uh, Councillor Marula has pushed back and says he's now going to file a complaint with the CRTC, that being the Canadian Radio Television Commission, about the way in which uh, CHCH is reporting, and he says stifling his opinion. Uh, Marula, uh, uh, not surprisingly, was uh, very vocal and very outspoken. It's a joke. I'd be surprised if the Integrity Commission even takes it. We're talking about a, a, a an alleged significant media outlet that is trying to mute an elected official, a democratically elected official, and his opinion. I'm not sure if that even happens in Russia. This is so outrageous and outlandish that that the CRTC. Need, I'm I'm actually launching a complaint to the CRTC about how ridiculous and how how incompetent this station is. They're a Mickey Mouse station, and they're proving it. Councillor Sam Rula speaking with the CHML's Rick Zamperin yesterday. John Best uh, is the publisher of the Bay Observer. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to give his read on this. John, first of all, thanks for joining us today. Really appreciate your time. My pleasure, Bill. You have been uh, doing media in this town for a long, long time now, in various incarnations, of course. One time at CHCH uh, in the newsroom there. Uh, Have you ever seen anything spiraling out of control like this has seemed to have occurred in the last week and a half, two weeks? Uh. Probably. Um, you know, as you say, I've been around a long time, so I, I can't point to anything specifically, but I'm not sure it's spiraling out of control. I mean, we have, we've got a couple of dueling uh, complaints to higher authority. Um, I'm not sure either uh, will necessarily go anywhere, but uh, time will tell. You know, in, in the news media, um, I think we have to... Uh, be prepared to be criticized, and I and I think we have to allow uh, uh, you know a, a fairly broad latitude of how that criticism is expressed. So, in the case of Marula, he described the reporters uh, reporting as BS. Um, you know, I, I that's you know kind of on the on the fringe, I suppose. But but frankly, I, I think uh, in the news media we we have to be able to take that kind of criticism. The only thing I would say to offset that is that CHCH does not engage in editorializing. They don't have a daily opinion piece. Um, they they don't uh, editorialize. Uh, you know their coverage is pretty down the middle. And uh, in you know if it was something that I said, I mean I I couldn't care less, and, and I, I would fully expect that that's being said about me all the time, because I do express opinion in in my outlet. Mm-hmm. A um, little different with this, with the with a, uh, an outlet that does not have a, a regular editorial, uh, so it's it's just going to be kind of interesting to see where it goes. Uh, you know, I I don't think I would have filed 
um, a complaint to the integrity commissioner, but it, it, on the other hand, it may be useful in the sense that the integrity commissioner, you know, we, we may find out what the parameters are according to the uh, integrity commissioner's uh, um, mandate. It might, it'll be interesting to get his opinion, I guess is what I'm saying. Interestingly enough, though, when you were running the newsroom over there at the TV station at CHCH, uh, you did have those people. I mean, you had Charrington and Beddoes, and, and Norm Marshall did uh, commentaries on a number of things, and, uh, and I'm sure there were some politicians that had their feathers ruffled by some of the stuff that they said. Oh, they did, and they, they phoned my boss. Uh, I used to do commentary as yeah, well. Yeah. And, you know, they, they were either phoning me to complain about the people you just mentioned, or they were phoning my boss to complain about me. Uh, but it was a different time, and, and I think if you look at, at local news outlets across Canada, local television news, the idea of, of commentary has kind of faded. Uh, I don't know, you don't see it on, I don't know of any Toronto station that's doing it. Uh, at one time, every station uh, locally did uh, did commentary, which is, is kind of funny that it's declining at the local level at a time when you can turn on cable news, and it's nothing but opinion. Uh, it's very hard to find any hard news in there. Yeah, the, the worm has turned. It seems to be this about the opposite of the way things were. Well, l- let me ask you then, based on, on your experience and based on your observations over the last couple of days, uh, in this particular situation, are both sides overreacting? I, I would I would say a little bit, and and I would say I, I'm I read the the tweet from Councillor Marula, and I wasn't sure, uh, and I also saw the report uh, that was uh, provided by the reporter, uh, who who I think you know frankly is is a good reporter, and I think she she does a great job there uh, on uh, Diana Weeks. I, I I like the stuff she does. Um, very dead ahead reporter, no flamboyance uh, at all. Um, so I'm not sure exactly what was irritating the counselor, but I wondered if, in fact, it was not what she said or what she didn't say, as much as it was um, just a fabulous picture that she took. She's a videographer, so she shoots her own her own material, mm-hmm. and she got a shot of of uh, Councillor Marula and Councillor Collins engaging in something that everybody knows they've been doing for years which is sitting there snickering and nudging each other and uh, looking at each other's uh, cell phones and uh, all this going on at a time when I think it was Brad Clark who was delivering his uh, his motion on the matter, which was intended to be a very serious motion. And, you know, anybody that goes to council or anybody that's been on council will tell you that these two have engaged in this kind of schoolboy uh, banter, um, uh, you know, even when public, uh, well, you know, when there's public delegations, people appearing before council, uh, these two are just at it like a couple of school kids, and and her photograph captured it perfectly. And I'm uh, I wonder if in fact that was uh, what triggered his anger more than the actual journalism. Well, if I recall, his assertion is is that uh, he feels that the, the he ta- he says that both his family and and his, his staff uh, received death threats, and he seems to be trying to create some link between that report and and that result. Yeah, I doubt that very much. I mean, he he made some provocative comments, uh, and and by the way, uh, his comments, uh, while provocative, uh, were within the realm of. Uh, plausibility uh, he, he has the opinion that he expressed which was that there was some violence committed by some of the pro-gay groups 
that was a perfectly legitimate comment to make based on the video that was seen. Now, it still doesn't get to the issue of who started it. It doesn't get to the issue of um, would any of this have happened if that religious group hadn't wandered, you know, hadn't marched in there and, and really started things. So it's, it's not about who started it, but he, he simply made the point that there were, there were some fists flown uh, from the other side, uh, by, and, uh, you know, that, that's what got him into trouble with, with the audience. Um, and, but his, that opinion was widely reported, so I'm not sure where the notion of the, that it was suppressed came in. But as far as uh, whatever was happening in terms of threatening him and his family, I'm sure it arose out of his remarks at council, and, and I'm sure the threats and comments came from people that, that didn't like what he said. I don't think the, you know, frankly, the, the report was uh, fairly anodyne in that regard. It, it, you know, it, it was not a provocative report at all, uh, although certainly that picture uh, of the two counselors uh, chatting was, um, you know, what a lot of people took away as being the real story. I, I don't know where this is going to go, and I, I, I concur, by the way, with your assessment about what might happen if both of these sides do decide to go ahead with uh, with their, their concerns and, and, and file official complaints. Uh, first of all, with all due respect to, to the individual who holds the position, I don't think the Integrity Commission is going to do diddly squat around here because uh, any ruling that they've made in the past here has, has been rather benign to begin with, and I can't see that it would be any different in this situation. And as far as the CRTC is concerned, uh, uh, boy, I tell you, if 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 they were going to take shots and 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 punish people that you know making these sorts of comments as as, as he was going to make right now, uh, half the people in in this industry be out of trouble. I mean, with some of the the vitriol that's going on these days, back and forth, especially on social media. Uh, and so I, I'm not so sure that that's the solution. But I guess the concern that I've got here, though, John, more importantly, is. Uh, well, we're looking for reconciliation, I guess, uh, in, uh, from all quarters here to try to find some peace. Uh, that it seems that there are still some people trying to throw gasoline onto the, uh, the fire here, and that's that's making a bad situation worse. Well, it's it's unfortunate, although uh, these references to the integrity commissioner and the CRTC will will you know take months probably to to find their way through. Um, you know, in terms of the integrity commissioner, you and I've talked about it. No offense to whoever's holding the office, but I, I just think it's untenable to have an integrity commissioner that's uh, that's accountable to council. I, I don't think you're ever going to get the kind of uh, in-depth, um, aggressive kind of uh, uh, governance that that you need, and and unless the integrity commissioner is totally independent, which probably means uh, being under the provincial jurisdiction that ain't going to work crtc my experience having been complained about uh, many times um, they tend not to get into adjudicating journalistic issues uh, in other words where where you have to decide what the facts are that goes beyond what the crtc typically does they're more into issues like uh, uh, you know, did you know were the comments uh, you know uh, extreme? Uh, were they um, incitement to violence? Uh, they're they're not much for getting into issues of he said she said. So I'd, I'd be surprised if that went anywhere. And in fact, they don't have a mechanism to deal with that really. Uh, you know, complaints uh, about broadcast outlets are usually on a broader level. 
uh, although we we have seen situations in radio where where uh, disc jockeys and and radio personalities have been censured, you know, for for really outrageous uh, on air behavior, but it's it's rare that the commission will get involved in news stories. Yeah, the the story that they're talking about filing these things, I think, is far greater than the the, the, the implications of this. Because you're right, I don't think either one of these uh, complaints, if they, in fact they do make them official and file these, are going to go anywhere. But but where are we going to go from here? I mean, uh, apparently, John, we're going to have a meeting at City Hall tomorrow, and I'm not even sure if anybody's going to show up. Uh, or, uh, you know, so that's not really going to resolve anything. Uh, I'm looking a little bit ahead here too. I was just checking the calendar. Two weeks from today is the next police services board meeting, which, of course, is going to be an open meeting at Hamilton City Hall. And uh, I, I, I'm wondering just what kind of an atmosphere that's going to present for itself if we don't get any sense of, rev- of resolution to any of these issues that seem to be surfacing now. Well, I would hope uh, at, at the police services board meeting that, that, that the administration of the police aren't going to wait until that meeting to be asked to submit a report on on what happened. Uh, they they will have um, a lot of detail about what happened at the Gage Park event. I would like to think that you know they'd be working on preparing that now, so that when we have the meeting two weeks from now, we can get some kind of a fulsome report from the chief. What happened? Uh, where were your officers deployed? Uh, you were asked not to be in the park. Uh, nonetheless, you did have a presence in the park through, I saw bicycle police there, and it's reported that there were also plainclothes police there. And then later we see a large number of uniform officers there when you look at some of these videos. Uh, there's nonetheless criticism that they, I don't know, too slow, too uh, whatever, um, getting involved. I, I, it, it strikes me as a no-win situation, but uh, let's see, you know, surely the police can tell us, did they have some kind of a contingency plan? Um, sent, you know, because it was a pretty good sense that there was going to be some kind of a clash. So what was the plan? Uh, you know, where were the police? And, um, you know, that were not in the park, were, were they nonetheless deployed so they could get there quickly? You know, I think those kind of questions can be answered. And, and maybe by that time uh, the police will have video that, that gives us a better sense of exactly how this clash first uh, broke out. And, and you know, I'd, I'd, I'd simply like to know, and I don't think we'll probably get to this until we get to trials, but I'd like to know if any of the people with pink hoods are some of the people that have now been arrested. It's not fully clear. Those are, you know, those are the kind of things that I think need to be cleared up, frankly. Well, and the concern here is that, uh, you know, since, well, I guess the, the, the information that we've received from police so far basically uh, has been from the interview I did with Chief Gert. It was just a couple of days after the Gage Park incident. Uh, we haven't had much in the way of official response from the police since then, certainly not from the Police Services Board, aside from a couple of comments from the mayor himself, who's the chair of that committee. Uh, so, sure. as, as you said, there's more questions than answers right now. And uh, I, I, I'm, I am on side with you here. I think that, you know, somebody's got to speak up. I'm assuming there's a report there, and I think a lo- the, the police could go a long way towards uh, clarifying an awful lot of issues if they came forward with some of this information about how they did deploy, where they were deployed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, is there an investigation in some of the alleged comments that a couple of the officers on scene are, are alleged to have made? A uh, lot of questions, and, and like I say, we need to, to, to delve down into that. And I, the police, at some point, the Police Services Board, I think, has to come forward here. Yeah, I mean, I, I would, you know, hope, frankly, that the police don't need to wait for that 
broad, but if they do, uh, you know, certainly the police board, uh, if they haven't had a report, uh, if there isn't a report available uh, at the next meeting, then certainly one should be asked for, and and it should be produced because, uh, you know, the the two major sources of criticism right now are the police uh, and uh, the mayor, and uh, the mayor can obviously account for himself, uh, but, you know, I think the police need to uh, describe exactly uh, their role uh, on on that event, uh, on that day. Absolutely. John Best from the Bay Observer. John, as always, thanks so much for this. My pleasure, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, this is the 4th of July. It's Independence Day in the United States. Uh, big celebrations happening all over uh, the United States. Uh, Boston, of course, get the big Boston Pops concert and the band shell there and the uh, fireworks display that go on there. But uh, all eyes are usually on Washington for the big ceremony that goes on there in the nation's capital. But it's going to be a little different this year. Uh, Donald Trump will actually speak at this event, uh, which is, I don't want to say unprecedented, but it doesn't happen in decades. My understanding is the last time a U.S. president actually made a speech uh, during the uh, Independence Day ceremonies was uh, in the early 1950s. Harry Truman did. Uh, but that was in the middle of the Korean conflict, uh, the, America at war for all intents and purposes. But, uh, well, Donald Trump is a different animal altogether, and uh, he's taking a different tact on this. Joining us to talk about uh, what might be happening tonight and uh, the feedback and, in some cases, pushback from this, uh, Ryan Hurl is with us, assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at uh, the University of Toronto, uh, specializing in American political development, thought, and constitutional law. Uh, Ryan, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us today. Oh, no problem at all. Thank you. Uh, the one thing that we can expect from Donald Trump is he's going to do things differently, I guess, from everybody else. So I suppose there's a little part of me, Ryan, that's suggesting that we shouldn't be surprised by any of the things he's proposing to have happen today. Yeah, it's certainly not very surprising coming from Trump. He's a showman. He's an entertainer. And he I'm not sure if he necessarily came up with this idea himself, but it seems a quintessentially Trumpian. Uh, I think that it's not likely to be one of like one of his uh, campaign rallies where his really his effectiveness comes from the fact he's speaking off the cuff, he's making jokes, and he seems, comes across as very authentic. I assume it's going to be a very uh, scripted event, but I think he's already achieved a great deal because he's drawn so much attention to this particular event. There's people are covering it. Are, there's a lot of uh, public interest in it. So I think it has the, actually has the potential to have significant upside for the president. Well, and I th- I'm sure that's what he's looking at here. I mean, he's he's a declared candidate. I mean, he, you know, he did, mm-hmm. I think he actually filed his papers the day after he uh, was sworn in, wasn't it, a few years ago? So we knew that he was going to be seeking the nomination, which he'll get, of course, and and that he's running for president again. Uh, is there a, some legitimacy, though, Ryan, to the the fear that some people have is that, that this is going to devolve into really just, for all intents and purposes, a campaign rally? If it, I think it will be a disaster for the president if it does devolve into a, into an explicit campaign rally. If he stands up there and is making political accusations and is acting defensive, or is even really invoking like specific political issues, I, as I said, I think it's going to be highly scripted, and I think Trump is going to focus on kind of the symbolic issues that have always been kind of a strength for the Republican Party. Uh, just a sort of a general sense of patriotism, general love of the country and its history, general generalized support for the military. I think Trump and his advisors are smart enough to realize that this is not a moment to go on a direct political attack. Rather, it's a time, a time to remind the country about 
some of the things where uh, some of those issues where the Republican Party might have a slight advantage, at least at a, at a symbolic level. Uh, over the Democrats. I I agree with you totally. From a pragmatic standpoint, this is not the time or place to do this. Uh, But on the other hand, sometimes uh, Trump can't help himself. I think that he must know, and you never know with President Trump, but he must be aware that there's there's already going to be so much attention placed on this, and that the possibility uh, for people to react um, negatively to over-partisanship is immense. I do think that so it has to it, and it's all, he has to be political and almost in a subliminal way, right? I think that there, uh, particularly at, you know, we, have to, we have to think of this in light of the ongoing uh, Democratic nominating nomination campaign, where the Democrats in many cases are uh, the ones who are running for president, all twenty five of them, are often having to appeal to uh, voters, primary voters, who are a little bit outside of the political mainstream, more on the left end of the political spectrum. So I think what Trump wants to do here is say, look. Whereas the Democratic Party tends to focus on what is bad about the United States, is more critical about the United States, not only about the administration, but about American history. Uh, Here, the Republican president is simply going to assert this sort of general love of all things American. So I think Trump is savvy enough to to realize that uh, anything more political than that, anything directly political, is going to, people are going to have a negative reaction to it. I think people are willing to have the president play a public role on the 4th of July, but there is also a sense that the 4th of July is not simply meant to be another political day, another another day for partisan spats. My understanding is, I mean, this is well orchestrated. Uh, I'm not sure who's oh, yeah. doing the organization on this, but uh, uh, listening to some of the the coverage uh, on this yesterday, Ryan, and they're suggesting that uh, he's actually, during his speech, and he says he's not going to speak for very long, and, well, and if it's, uh, which tells me you're right, it probably is going to be scripted, but he's going to have each member, a, a representative of each member of the armed services up there and talk about that armed service and the contribution they made, uh, obviously from a, pre- a pre-done script. Uh, but that's a photo op. That's a classic photo op, obviously, for a guy that's running to get his job back again. So there's, there is a, a political element of this. Even if, as you say, if it, is, it rather is subliminal, it's going to be there. Right. Oh, absolutely. And I think that the, the, the sweet spot for any Republican president, I think, is to show sort of unconditional support for military personnel, uh, to uh, support uh, and express a general love of the military, but to avoid unnecessary foreign wars. And Trump has achieved that. There aren't too many other specific legislative accomplishments you can point to in the Trump administration, but support for the military while, while at the same time avoiding military con- uh, conflict are, are one of those areas where there has been some success. So I think it's necessary uh, and useful, I guess you could say, uh, for the President Trump to focus on this. And again, as long as it is simply... Uh, let's thank the military for their role in America's history. Let's thank you for the job they do today. I don't think there's, there's not going to be much of a downside. And again, it's not completely unprecedented. I mean, there hasn't been a kind of military-style parade uh, on the 4th of July in this setting in Washington, D.C. But if you look back, say, through the Clinton administration, he engaged in you know, 4th of July in events that had you know, a military component uh, uh, you know, having gun salutes from naval ships and so on and so forth in uh, in New York Harbor. So this, again, as you also mentioned earlier, it's not it's not entirely unprecedented for 
uh, presidents to engage in this kind of almost subliminal politicking, uh, political activity during Fourth of July events. But what about that aspect? Because you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, that's getting a lot of play down there not, right now, Ryan, about the the militarization of this. Uh, and and uh, we've we've heard the speculation, of course, that that, that maybe the seed for this started uh, when he was over in France. I guess a couple of years ago now. Uh, on Bastille Day, and there was a military parade uh, with honor guards, uh, planes flying overhead, uh, tanks, etc., on the streets. And if you recall at the time, he said, we we got to do one of those in Washington. That would be right. great. Uh, and, of course, that got poo-hooed pretty quickly. I think uh, well, just the Pentagon, but I think also a number of other people stepped in and said, you can't do that. Uh, it right. just isn't done. It's, it is rather unprecedented for him to do this. The, this is a, a kind of a watered-down version, I think, of what he wanted to do back then. Right. Well, I mean, military parades in Washington, D.C. are not totally unprecedented, though. In I think the last major military parade was probably after the first Gulf War, uh, where George H.W. Bush, the first President Bush, had a military victory parade. I believe it was June, uh, June 1990. Um, but, yeah, so I think that, yeah, it might be, it might, the entire situation might be as simple as this. Uh, Trump was impressed by that parade, and he desired to have one of his own. Uh, and, and so I said, having it in Washington on the 4th of July, altering the entire 4th of July celebration, uh, that's a little bit unprecedented. But uh, having the military involved in various kinds of 4th of July activities, frankly, I'm not entirely sure what the controversy is. They're celebrating a revolution, right? This would seem to be a perfectly fine time to have a, a, you know, a salute to the military, so I find some of the some of the reactions to this, you know, the reactions to having, say, tanks in the street, uh, it's a bit of an overreaction. The mere fact that there are tanks in the street does not make someone into, I don't know, does not make it Tiananmen Square. Uh, it is, I, I think that while there is legitimate concerns over uh, the politicization of the 4th of July, I suppose, I, I think that the concerns over the salute to the military is a little bit overdone. But he he does open himself up to uh, the other side of this too, and and we're understanding that the the the, the anti-Trump folks are going to be out there in full force uh, sometimes through the course of the day today too. Uh, I'm I'm sure you saw the pictures too, right? It looks like the baby Trump blimp is is around uh, and could be flying. Although apparently they forgot to get a, a permit for the helium, so it's just going to be ordinary. So I don't even know if the thing's going to float. Uh, but they're going to be there. But I mean, I, he's he's got to be used to seeing that stuff by now. Um, I, I think he might give some of his handlers uh, a little bit of a, a, a nervous twitch. Uh, hopefully, he would will not be. I think from their perspective, they might be worried of him being, uh, you know, being distracted by the presence of protesters. But uh, you know, political protests—that's uh, another thing that's perfectly fine to engage in and to celebrate on Fourth of July. What, uh, in fact, there's probably no better day to do it. This isn't going to swing anybody. I mean, if, if you know, this controversy, and I'll use the term advisedly because a lot of folks do seem to be upset about this, whether that's, uh, you know, it's sincere or not, I guess it, you know, we'll, we'll have to make those value judgments ourselves. But but this isn't going to sway anybody. I mean, if you, if you love this guy, and, and he does have a core of supporters there, uh, they're going to love him even more. And if you're, if you're opposed to this guy, uh, I guess this just adds fuel to that fire, too. Um, I disagree. Uh, I think that, I mean, in and of itself, um, this is not going to sway anyone's votes necessarily. But you have to remember that even though so much of the country is so politically divided, Trump is probably, if he wins re-election at all, it's going to be in narrow margins. And so what he will have to do is capture some votes of people and voters in key states, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, who are basically moderate, middle-of-the-road Democrats who 
might have uh, you know a certain affinity with many of the uh, Democratic Party's main domestic policy programs, say in healthcare, but who are somewhat off-put by certain of the symbolic aspects of the emerging Democratic Party on a lot of social questions, and per, and so and from that perspective, sort of reaffirming this uh, the the support uh, support of the military, you know, pride in the armed services. I think that can be part of a long-term strategy. Uh, to appeal to uh, those voters who are actually are undecided. It's not necessarily many of them, but as we know from 2016, a relatively small number of voters in the American context can turn an entire election. Well, certainly, and, and let's face it, I mean, when you when you look at back at those results, and the end result, of course, was that Donald Trump got elected, uh, there right. were a lot of people that were probably traditional Democratic voters that decided that he just, they were not going to vote for Hillary Clinton. Uh, and many of them stayed home, but some of them voted Republican. And uh, the challenge, I guess, for the Democrats now is to try to win them back, uh, which, again, plays in, into what the president is doing here uh, by going to core American values. Uh, right. That's kind of juxtaposed against what many people think is a Democratic Party right now that may be moving a little bit too far to the left for some people's comfort zone. Yes, I think that's the case. I mean, tr- I think Trump's strategy here is that it's going to be difficult for many of the Democrats, at least during primary season, to express this kind of almost cliched version of American patriotism, flag-waving, uh, support from the military, and so on. So I think what he wants to sort of set the battlefield, set the political battlefield, as it were, and try to position the Democratic Party, they're the critics of the United States, those are the one, they're the ones who are now uh, dissatisfied, not even with America now, but particularly America's history and traditions, whereas Trump wants to occupy the position of just full, unadulterated patriotism. Which he's obviously going to do and have center stage for this tonight. Of course, this may all be a moot point. We're, we're told there's some pretty severe weather heading into Washington right now, so I'm not sure, sure how much of this actually is going to take place uh, vis-a-vis oh, the air show, etc. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, I actually read a, what I thought was an amusing piece of research on this, and that apparently, according to some scholars, the number of uh, days in which uh, there is no rain on Fourth of July. Could actually have an effect on people's patriotism as they grow up. And the <laughs> idea is that the idea here. I'm not sure I buy this, but the idea here is that maybe these public celebrations and festivals really do have an effect on people, particularly at a younger age. I guess the idea is that your patriotism will not be ramped up if you have you know five, six years of rainy Fourth of Julys in a row when you're a child. Right. Let me very quickly. I want to ask you about this. Uh, this is a day of celebration, and and you'd like to think that they're going to put partisan politics aside, and and we'll, you know that remains to be seen. Uh, but there are other things swirling around Washington right now, of course, that uh, that have been uh, of concern to the president. Uh, you know, the attorney general's assertion that uh, that they can ignore a court order about uh, about the census uh, questions that are being asked. That's news as of yesterday. Uh, we're just a few days away from Mueller uh, reporting in front of both committees uh, on the Hill in the next little while. Uh, how quickly is, is, is this glow going to start to fade after that and get right back into the nitty gritty of what's going on in the Beltway? Almost instantaneously. <laughs> it, it's going to be the briefest, the briefest of pause before the, the battle over 2020 and really the ongoing battle over 2016 <laughs> continues. Um, this, and one thing that people should remember is that if you want to be sort of reassured that it's possible for this, uh, this level of apparent chaos to continue, I just encourage people to read a little bit of American history from almost any age, right? This is, this is what democracy looks like people battling it out, people at each other's throats, uh, people being divided. The notion of a golden age where everybody agreed all the time, every day, and sat around singing Kumbaya, those days never really existed. 
um, not in the Obama administration. Are you telling uh, me there was no Camelot, Ryan? <laughs> <laughs> there was no, there was no Camelot. I was going to say not in the Obama administration, not in, uh, not in the administration of George Washington. Uh, politics is that's politics. That's democracy. Ryan, uh, thanks as always. Great getting your perspective on this. Appreciate the time today. Thank you for having me on. Anytime. Take care. Ryan Hurl, of course, assistant professor at uh, the University of Toronto. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, with the uh, Canadian federal election uh, coming up this October, uh, just on the horizon, of course, in the uh, U.S. federal election, about a year later, it's in November of 2020, uh, the risk for foreign interference is very high. Legal experts on this side of the border say that it's actually unlikely, though, that there, there could be any serious consequences for interference. In other words, if they find somebody doing this sort of stuff, there's not a whole lot they can do about it. Or set, that's what some experts are saying anyway. Let's uh, bring in one of those experts to talk about this. Daniel Tobak is the CEO for Sci Intelligence Incorporated, experts on cybersecurity, uh, and always a welcome guest on the program. Daniel, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us today. Thanks for having me back. Daniel, are we wising up, wising up to, to what's going on here, to the reality? Because there, there seemed to be a debate right up until just a little while ago that, that yeah, maybe this is happening, maybe it isn't. Uh, what we're hearing from CSIS and some other agencies now, Daniel, is it's, this is not a case of this might happen. It's probably happening right now. Absolutely. I mean, we, we have some serious, what I call, lessons learned from the, the previous uh, U.S. elections where there was, you know, what I call elections meddling and interference by foreign governments. So there's definitely been different task force assigned to actually study this and try to prevent it or try to deal with it as it comes. I mean, the, the, the effects are imminent. I mean, this is going to happen. Uh, there's a lot of foreign governments out there that are very interested in, A, flexing their muscles, or B, potentially swaying away, you know, and making a difference in this particular election. Let it be in Canada or the U.S., it's kind of become a new thing out there as, as another thing to deploy and play with. And this is not a situation of, of like a, a single hacker. I mean, you know, I think you and I talked to some months ago, but uh, the, the guy up in Ancaster, just up the hill from our radio station here, that uh, was finally caught hacking into, and, and selling secrets. Uh, he's in prison in, in, in California right now for, for doing that. But this is a, this is a monstrous endeavor by, by some of these. This is not just one or two guys in a basement someplace, is it? Yeah, this is no longer a bunch of what I call pimple-faced kids sitting in mommy's and daddy's basement, absolutely. I mean, this is, uh, this is extremely organized, extremely funded. Uh, I would say the upper echelon of organized crime, which become agents, uh, or this is, an, in most cases, a state-sponsored type organizations, uh, which, are, which have a very particular and focused mandate. But again, the key word here, they're, they're very well financed and organized. Maybe you could dispel another concern or myth that, that I'm hearing from a lot of people every time we have these conversations, Daniel, is that what's the big deal? We're only Canada. We're not a, a major player uh, in, on the world stage like the United States or, or the U.K. or places like that. Who'd be interested in, in, in trying to involve themselves in a Canadian election? You know, that's a great question. So, I mean, Canada today, really, I mean, I, I call it, we, we're the other Switzerland. You know, <laughs> we, we're neutral. We're neutral on many, you know, geopolitical affairs around the world. Uh, but we do also stand united in, in many ways with, with the United States. Uh, so we are an ally. We're, we're part of, you know, the, the, the six eye, uh, you know, five eyes community. Uh, so, you know, we, we do have enemies. And, and don't kid yourself. We are because, you know, in the geopolitical affairs around the world, you're either with us or against us. I mean, it's really one of those type of uh, scenarios out there. 
so we do have people that want to change, uh, you know, the certain nature of the political environment in Canada because that affects and has ripples across other affairs. Uh, I mean, I'll give you just an example. I mean, just from dark web uh, research over the last 48 hours, because of the comments we made uh, during the Ukrainian president visit to, to Canada over the last couple of days, there's a lot of chatter out there. Oh, you know, Canadians are aligned with this. They're anti-Russian. They're anti-this. And now, you know, you know, we are an enemy to certain particular parts of the world. So, we, we, you know, when we choose a side, we, we just basically put a barrier with another side. That's just the way it works in the world. Well, and, and I guess uh, notwithstanding, you know, your point's well taken. I remember seeing some of those comments, too, and there was some concern that uh, obviously the Russians are going to say, wait a second here, you're, you're, you're siding with a guy that's, that's against what we're doing in Ukraine? Uh, so all of a sudden you don't know what the implications are going to be. We can throw China into that bunch too, couldn't we, Daniel? Obviously because of the conflict that's going on from a political standpoint right now, uh, you've got to be concerned about what the Chinese may be interested in doing here with an election coming up. Absolutely. And, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm often asked, you know, again, what is the actual damage somebody can cause? And, and I know we've talked about this before. You know, the damage can come from, you know, actually swaying voters by propaganda and, you know, I call from Facebook ads to different directed marketing. But we also have to understand that part of their actions is to actually portray and show their power and capability. And, you know, I, I always call it in, 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 in an army warfare strategy type uh, style, you know, the adversary, you know, the other side doesn't have to shoot, you know, a rocket to, to basically display their power. And that's what we have with cyber today. There might not be, you know, God forbid, any buildings exploding or any actual human loss, but they're able to flex the muscle and say, hey, we can do this, you know, we can turn up grids, we can change elections, we can sway voters, we can change the, your democracy in your country. That's a very powerful message. Right. There's a strategy to what they do, too, isn't there, Daniel? I mean, this is not just done in an arbitrary fashion, and it's it's not done in a shotgun method uh, where, where they just say, boy, let's just throw it out there, and hopefully a lot of Canadians will, will buy into this. They're very strategic in, as to who they actually want to focus on. Absolutely. And, I mean, this is, again, I don't mean to portray something out of a Hollywood movie, but, you know, there is a war room. There are, you know, many people assigned. There are very fat budgets for this. This is a well-planned act, right, and strategy. Uh, you know, somebody doesn't wake up just in the morning and says, today we're going to do this. No, no, it's years and years of, of compromising accounts and compromising people and compromising information and using harvested data and then basically deploying. That's the new cyber war. I mean, and it's, 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 it's not as glorious as you on TV. Not everybody is good-looking and rock around with perfect hair, but there's a lot of people that are involved in this. Well, and we saw that characterized. Uh, I guess this is another Im situation of art imitating real life. Uh, there's a movie that was made over in the UK. It's called Brexit. I don't know if you had a chance to see it with uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, and it's it's basically about the, the 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 Brexit move that was on there, and and the analytics that went involved in that, and 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 the uh, again the cyber war that went on to try to sway voters to to actually change. And uh, there were foreign powers involved in that too. There seems to be growing evidence about that. Uh, and now you see, here we are years later, uh, the mess that the U.K. is still in and, and dealing with, uh, the fallout from that. And to a large extent, that was orchestrated by the sort of stuff that we're talking about right now. Absolutely. I, I have to say this, you know, I, 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 you know, I find a bit ironic. 25 years ago, I did my thesis in school 
on you know 1984 George Orwell and and all that fun stuff. And in the end of the day, it's uh, you know it's life imitating Hollywood, Hollywood imitating life. Today, it's about reaching out to everyone and to they have the ability to deploy that information to them. It has gotten extremely easy. Everybody has mobile phones. Everybody has social media accounts. It's very easy to uh, to deploy that type of information. And I always say it can be used for good, but it can also be used for bad. And that's what we saw at Brexit uh, in that particular movie is the dissemination of information to people, and you do sway people's opinion. Indirectly, you really do that. Well, and it happened in the last U.S. presidential election. I know that Donald Trump doesn't really want to admit to that, but, and again, because he was rather dismissive of that, of course, that's because, come on, you don't sway a, a whole country of voters, but you don't need to. If you can sway a couple of voters in key states like Pennsylvania and Michigan, uh, you see how that swung the tide. Those were states that nobody expected were going to Trump, and for one reason or another, they did, but that swung a number of electoral college votes, which really turned the election in his favor. Yeah, yeah, no, I saw some information about that, absolutely. So on and on it goes. I guess the other question, though, and I think this is one of the things that uh, security officials are concerned about here, uh, they're tracking this. As you said, uh, Daniel, we're getting information from the Five Eyes about some of the other stuff that's going on in other jurisdictions, and, and they're sharing that. But even if we identify that it's happening, and it is, and even if we identify maybe who is doing it, what can Canadian officials do about it? So, you know, one of, one of the issues we have today in the cyber world is jurisdictional liability. Mm-hmm. And what, what I mean by that is, you know, when, when you have people, organizations from different countries, you know, doing something here, it, it, it's basically impossible to go and actually arrest somebody physically, right? So we're going to have to use diplomatic-type uh, channels to, to capture these people, stop it, seize it, uh, and so on. The problem is with some of the countries that this action is actually happening from, uh, our diplomatic relationships are, are, are getting worse and worse. So uh, our room for conversations, is, is, you know, and, and that particular gap is getting larger and larger. Uh, you know, I'm referring to countries like China and Russia as an example. Um, so it's going to get even more difficult for us as Canadians to, to use the proper channels to stop this. Uh, we're going to have to kind of get back to the table and have some very positive conversations and, and, you know, and I say this word with a grain of salt, but really reestablish partnerships with those countries if we want something done and stop, you know, from their jurisdiction. I mean, I guess one of the biggest challenges here is uh, even if you do identify, and, and you know, that it's happening and it's emanating from such and such a country, uh, you, you're not absolutely sure, I would think, Daniel, whether or not, you know, before you even ask about extradition or something because of the, the guilty parties, uh, the government may be complicit in this. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and, it, and it got them very confusing. I'll give an example. We, we uh, consistently see evidence of, of what I call, uh, you know, Canadian IPs uh, involved in breaches, uh, but they're really coming from other countries. So they're able to also properly protect their identity and have different hops and so on. So that adds more complexity to outside even, you know, having government involved in this. So it's, it's, it's quite messy. You know, unlike a physical crime where you can potentially see somebody, even if you see them in a mask and you can't see their identity, but you physically see them doing something because of surveillance, in cyber, that becomes more difficult because they're intangible. They're basically invisible. What advice do you give us, Daniel, to, to, to try to defend ourselves, I guess, and protect ourselves from being exposed to this and, more importantly, I guess, being influenced by this? So, you know, it's, it's a great question, and, and there isn't, you know, what I call the perfect solution. 
But, but th- this is really a two-step type strategy. Number one, you know, in Canada as a government, we have to reallocate and invest more in cyber, both for our intelligence community, our, our army, you know, uh, Department of National Defense and so on, Ottawa, to actually be able to protect citizens and businesses from this type of attacks, right? And I'll give you a scary thought. For, I mean, for every one expert in law enforcement that deals with cyber, uh, there's about 42 resources for other crimes. So it gives you a bit of an understanding where we're really understaffed in battling cyber crimes in Canada overall as a strategy. So that's number one. Number two, as citizens, we really have to start thinking about where is our data? Who has access to our data? You know, where is it residing? And who are we voluntarily giving it to? We talked about this many times, and I think we have to continually speak about this. You can't just publish endless information on Facebook and social media and expect to be private, right? There's a, there's, a, there's a reasonable expectation of privacy today, but people are just completely volunteering all of their data out there. So we have to start thinking about that. We all like the doors of our cars. We all like the doors at home. We might have a hungry poochie there as a little bit of a guard dog. We all think about the physical aspect of things. We have to change our mindset and think about the virtual, you know, digital harm that can be caused to us. And if we've already opened that Pandora's box and maybe be way too free with our information, is there a way that we can walk back on that? I mean, do we have to destroy accounts? or Are there safeguards that are available to us? You know, I always say this, not to sound cliche, better later than ever. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's like, you know, getting up on January 1st, looking at the scale and saying, it's time to start. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's kind of start to tighten it up a little bit. <laughs> we all do that on January 1st, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> Every January 1st. Every January 1st. <laughs> but to your, to your point, though, that ratio is rather disturbing, uh, one for 42, for, for people that are involved in, in dealing with cybercrime right now. Uh, d- does government not understand the gravity of the situation here? Uh, they understand. And again, you know, you know the one, some of the issues today with, with the Canadian government on provincial and federal is, A, you know, there is no proper allocated budget, so we're understaffed. Number two, we also have a bit of a resourcing problem in Canada with experts that are, are available for this type of deployment and work. So, I mean, it's, 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 it's a two-pronged issues today, both budget and resources, but we have to start working towards it that 15 years from now, 20 years from now, we're going to look back and, you know, the right steps have been taken. I mean, you know, uh, generously about six to nine months ago, you know, uh, uh, the Prime Minister Trudeau announced half a billion dollars allocated towards cyber and so on, which was a really amazing step in the right direction. But I'm going to be honest with you, it should have been a half a billion, it should have been about $5 billion over the next 10 years to spend into this to really minimize the gap that we have today. When, when we do this and identify that these, these problems and this information here, uh, do we really need to, to go back, as, as both the U.S. and to a lesser extent the Canadian governments have tried to do in the last little while, and, and, and bring people like Facebook and, and, and Twitter on side and, and use them as allies? Because they seem to be very hesitant to want to get involved in this. You know, in the end of the day, I, uh, I do have to say, you know, we, we do need the partnerships of, of those type of organizations. Um, you know, while I totally understand that they're private businesses and, you know, you, you know they, they can operate as they wish, they have a responsibility to society, just like banks today, you know, when they house your financial and personal information and your actual dollars, they have a compliance and responsibility to the government as well, 
because of the damage that can be caused if they were compromised. I, I say the same thing needs to work for those type of organizations, social media that has so much personal information about Canadian citizens, which could cause harm to us, right? So that is very important. But today, that's a gap in our legislation. I, I mean, they have kind of shown lip service to this, and uh, especially Facebook saying hey, they're going to, if they identify false news, they will label it as such. But they pro- they've said all at the same time they're not going to take it down, uh, which means they're going to leave it up to the discretion of the the, the reader as to whether or not they accept it as fake news or not, which is really the purpose of putting it up there in the first place. It's still going to be there. Uh, Twitter even less uh, compliant, it seems, in situations like this. So we have a long way to go there, don't we? We definitely, and that's really a big gap today. I mean, those organizations are what I call, they're, they're not at fault. They're not trying to, what I call, for example, change elections. They're not the bad ones, but they're being used as a vehicle. And, and I mean, I, I always say that, you know, and not to get controversial, but, you know, just a gun laying there is not, the, you know, is not something that is, is, is dangerous. It's the person behind it, just like a car, right? So a car can be used as a weapon. Uh, a gun can be used as a weapon. Well, now those social media platforms are being used as weapons and harming Canadians. So I, I believe the government has to step in and, and do get involved and do provide and, um, you know, create new compliance and legislation to put some perimeters around what they can do, what they cannot do in their corporation with the Canadian government and law enforcement authorities. Daniel, thanks as always for your insight into this. It's always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks for having me on. Take care. Daniel Tobuck, of course, CEO of Scientelligence Incorporated, experts in cybersecurity. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.